My name is Eric McCoy, and in this episode of Recovering Through Highness, we're going to delve into a child's worst nightmare. As a child, we're very dependent and need guidance to learn about this world that we've recently crawled into. For most, family are those teachers that we usually trust. But what happens when they overstep their boundaries? How does a child know that something is inappropriate and or even understand what a boundary is? As I have taught family systems, there are four primary boundary violations, major violations, that have been inflicted by those teachers that were designed to guide them. I've seen firsthand the consequences of these violations. There are times when a child may grow up with a parent who is mentally ill, where emotional boundaries are infringed upon as the child becomes the surrogate spouse or the caregiver. The substance abuse family, where the volatile and immature behavior of an intoxicated parent creates confusion about appropriate boundaries in interpersonal roles, as there's no models of rational or predictable behavior. There's a breakdown of honest communication, a lack of emotional stability and nurturing by parents, and a lack of safety that would permit trust self-disclosure, and intimacy to develop. You have the fundamentalist, dogmatic, or authoritarian family parents that trespass on children's rights to think for themselves, which is what we call mental boundaries. They also violate children's rights to make their own decisions, volitional boundaries, to interpret and act upon their own conscience, which we call moral boundaries and to experience and express their innate spirituality, creativity, and quest for meaning and value, which is spiritual boundaries. And finally, the most common is the physically and or sexually abusing family system. The child that grows up in this type of family will have his or her physical boundaries infringed upon, Psychologically, they suffer from sleep and eating disorders, fears and phobias. Many have recurring nightmares, dissociative reactions, depression, anxiety, and hysterical reactions. Many have low self-esteem and believe that they are polluted or inferior and feel intense guilt, fear, shame, and anger. According to the CDC, about one in four girls and one in 13 boys, although it's probably closer to one in seven boys, experience child sexual abuse at some point in childhood. 91% of child sexual abuse is perpetrated by someone the child or child's family knows. Now, my guest today happens to be one of my favorite people. Her name is Morella. And oddly, has the last name as I. Okay, not too oddly, since this is actually my wife, Morella McCoy. It is also our four-year anniversary today, so this is very exciting. Thank you, honey, for coming on today. As I described these boundary violations, you've experienced two of those throughout your childhood. Your father was an alcoholic. Greatly, actually, has many years clean and sober. How many? How many years does he have now? Now he's got eight. Growing up, he had fifteen, and then he relapsed, and now has eight. How was it growing up with an alcoholic father? You know, I was super young um, when he became um, sober. So I, I want to say I was about five or six um, when he when he first went into his AA meeting. So I don't remember specifically as a young child, his alcoholism uh, while he was drunk. Um, I do remember his new addiction of AA, however, and his constant absenteeism from the family because he was at some AA meeting or running some AA group. Um, So he became completely engulfed in into the recovery world. And so he was absent quite a bit. And it was difficult. I'm so glad you actually brought that up with the AA meetings because I have seen that many, many times. And I've, I've had clients that came in that 
I had a sponsor and I went to meetings and, uh, you know, I was working the program and I did everything that I needed to do. And then I relapsed. What's ironic about it, and I've found in working with many of these people, is that it becomes a compulsion, just like we talk about with, you know, the difference between abuse and dependence is compulsion. And when people switch to Alcoholics Anonymous, even though they think that that is the best thing for them to do, it becomes just as harmful. And I can say he did relapse when I was in my teenage years. Um, and it was very off and on it, meaning sometimes he would be a happy drunk and other times he would just be the meanest man on earth. Um, unable to control his anger at times um, and just caused a lot of, of grief um, amongst, especially with me and him. Uh, I adore my father now, um, but I was terrified of him for a long time growing up and terrified of how far he would go. In fact, I have a, a, a really distinctive memory at the age of 19. I still lived at home and um, I, I ended up coming home late, kind of dished my sister and I was supposed to be responsible for her. I absolutely needed to punish him for what I, what I had done. Um, my mother and older sister were away at a, some wedding in, I believe, New York or something like that. And so he was at home and he was quite upset when I did get home. And he choked me to the point where I almost passed out out of anger. And he was just completely drunk, had no control over his, uh, he had no control at all. Um, if my little sister had not been there and asked him and, and pretty much pulled him away and said, you're killing her. Um, he, I don't think he would have stopped. I wouldn't have been here today. Now, granted, I deserve to be punished. Just not in that way. Um, I know two, about two days later when I saw him again, um, cause I avoided him like the plague after that. Um, he did apologize to me, which I think it was the first and only time I remember my father apologizing for anything he did during his drunken stupors. So it was, it was pretty painful. It's a pretty painful memory. Um, but I remember like it was yesterday. And that's one of the most common things with, with alcoholics specifically is the, you know, especially with the children is that you don't know how they're going to be when they come home. They're drunk. There's confusion. Is he going to be happy? Is he going to be angry? Is he going to be rageful? And that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. I want to thank you for being honest and open about what we are basically going to talk about. When we delve into sexual abuse, children that experience sexual abuse, you know, this can ultimately affect how a person thinks, how they act, and how they feel over their lifetime. It can ultimately have short and long-term physical and mental and emotional health consequences which I have seen many times over the years in working with the industry with how many clients have had to deal with sexual abuse as a child and ultimately got into substance abuse and ended up in rehab. And I know with your family that there's a lot of, to me, strangeness. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned over the years regarding your grandmother, grandfather, father, and that dynamics there. And I think it would be important for you to explain that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think the first step to any kind of recovery is to talk about your story to help others um, that may be going through the same thing. So I'm super thrilled to be part of this podcast and be part of being able to tell my story and how it affects me and how I am today. So my story starts out pretty young. As I said, my dad was an alcoholic until I was about five or six or an active alcoholic until I was about five or six. Don't remember too much about that. My very first memory that I have of family, I was five years old and my grandfather on my father's side began to sexually molest me 
um, at, a, at this very young age. And, you know, a lot of things happened after that. As far as during the time that he was sexually molesting me, I also lost older sister. Um, she passed away at the age of 13. I was about six years old. And I do remember being her shadow and following her around everywhere. So my, my family suffered with that. Then, of course, after that, my father, um, you know, went started going to AA and started kind of being obsessed with the AA world. So I didn't have much of a father figure to go around. The reason I'm, I'm saying all this other stuff that happened is because through all this stuff that continued, I was being molested the entire time until I was 13 years old. We would go visit my grandparents probably about once or twice a week. And I had to go say hello and I had to, to be the good daughter and respectful granddaughter. And, and my grandfather was for some reason, constantly in bed. And I don't, don't know to this day if he was sick or he was just, that's where he went after work, but he was always in bed with his TV show on. And we were told we had to go say hello. And, and, you know, they, uh, they being my parents thought we were just these loving granddaughters because we would sit in bed with him. And while we were sitting in bed with him is uh, while I was sitting in bed with him, you know, that's when the molestation started. Um, and that's how it would be the whole time I was there with him. One of uh, a fond memory I have as within these um, couple of years was we, he went to Chile, which is the native land that my family's from. And my parents went to pick him up from the airport. And so of course we went we, my parents didn't let us go anywhere without, they wouldn't go anywhere without us. Talk about boundaries. We were also grew up in a very strict, strict environment where we couldn't make our own decisions um, on a lot of things. Of course, we went to pick him up. We were in the back seat. He's in the back seat. And while my parents are in the front seat, he's molesting me. Very, he's very lackadaisical. Like it was nothing. So fast forward to the age I'm 13 my little sister started acting a little, a little weird, a little concerned about going to go say hi to grandfather and acting a little, you know, just kind of off put and um, a loft setting. And we were talking, we were very close, my little sister and I, and I, and I asked her if grandfather had been touching her. And she said, yes, that um, she wondered if that was normal and it's embarrassing. It kind of hurts a little bit. And up until this point, never mentioned it to anybody. I never talked about it. I was afraid. I was afraid that of what was going to happen. He basically told me never to tell anybody that it would break up the entire family that, you know, things, um, they would blame me. You know, there was a lot of that guilt, like you said, a lot of shame, a lot of just a feeling of unprotection. Like I didn't have any protection and I didn't have any place to go. And so my sister told me this. And I remember a little bit after that, I was in a classroom and it was, I want to say it, it was a science class. And we were talking about the, the kids right to say no and to report when things happen. Somehow the conversation about sexual abuse um, came up in this classroom and I, I remember becoming real flippant about it and just being a real smart ass to the teacher and just getting kind of angry and saying, this is pointless. You know, this, I'm here to learn something else. I'm not going to talk about this and just became real flippant about it. And I think he caught on. So he caught on and he called me in after the end of the class and he asked me if something was happening. If, why did I get so angry? And and, you know, of course I blew it off and I was like, this is stupid. This, you know, this is just a stupid waste of time. I was angry. I was angry because I felt like I was being exposed with this conversation. And so he still was concerned and he went to the school counselor and the school counselor called me in the office and she asked me if everything was okay. And it was a, it was a safe place to talk. And I broke down and I said, I have to tell you because I don't want my little sister to hurt. And I ended up telling him and I'm telling the, the, the counselor, the counselor took all the steps necessary to get the police to his, to his home, called my mother. I told my mother, she had to come in that we had something to talk to her about from her work. Um, so she was concerned that I was in trouble of some sort. So the cat was out of the bag by the time I was 13. 
And you think that would have been the worst of it. And unfortunately it wasn't at that point, you know, he was arrested. The whole family knew at this point, um, on my dad's side of the family, even on my mom's side of the family. And so, you know, the, like I said, the cat was out of the bag. The worst part was, um, and this is something that I lived with for a very, very long time was half of the family didn't believe me more than half of the family thought I was making it up that I was just looking for attention how could I do this to the family? So everything that he had said would happen, happened. It split the family in half. And before this, we were very close. Needless to say, everybody on my dad's side of the family was very indifferent with me. But I do have to say my dad did believe me. My dad 100% believed me. He supported, he was, he didn't talk much about it. I think he was ashamed because it was his own father, but he let me know that I did the right thing. So because my dad believed me, and of course that caused more um, animosity and split between the family because now his sisters weren't talking to him. My grandmother did believe me, but she also said, it's kind of like, okay, well it's done. You know, you, you've said what you had to say and it's over. Like, let's just move on. So, you know, um, again, completely different world that she came in from. And, um, and so it caused a huge amount of anguish that of course, as a 13 year old child, which you're already kind of in this awkward feeling of your body and you're changing your hormones and all this other stuff is happening on top of all that. Now I take on responsibility that I split up the family that I'm causing all, all, you know, everybody's looking at me now going, Oh my God, did you know what happened to her? You know? And, And so it just became this constant feeling of insecurity of of making the wrong move or saying the wrong thing. And it was a really ugly, ugly situation. And around this time is when I started to experiment with, with drugs and started, you know, really lashing out and just getting in trouble in school. And I, I, I honestly felt like nobody cared. The only one who 100% with no questions asked took total control was my mother. She found out from, from going to court and and all this other stuff and and talking with my other sisters that he was already starting to molest my little sister. And my older sister admitted that he did attempt to molest her, but she stood up and um, told him, if you ever touch me again, I will tell somebody. And at this time, my oldest sister had passed away. And I think what tormented my mother the most was, was that, is that the reason my daughter got killed? Did he give her some sort of disease or something that caused her to die? Because at this point, actually to this day, we do not know what killed my sister. We know that my sister died of a heart attack at the age of 13, but we don't know what caused that heart attack. So my mom tormented herself in trying to figure out, did my daughter take this to her grave? Um, so that was, that was another big, you know, scenario in our family was, you know, the unknown of what happened to our older sister. And if that was the reason behind it. And then at also at age 13, having to sit in court and explain with this man in the courtroom, all the things that he did to me, to my body and to everything that happened in the last, you know, six, six years that I was being molested very difficult time for, for our family. You know, I think you answered a, an important question that all, everybody asks out there is why don't these people come forward? You know, we say this all the time with children that, you know, are getting molested. It's probably one of the most unreported crimes out there. And you answered that to, to an extent from your personal experience on why do kids not say something? Why do children's not, children not say anything? And as a result of fear, what they're saying, you know, some may say, oh, I'm going to hurt your family or you're going to destroy the family and it's ultimately going to be your fault. Right. And it's a blame that we carry on in our lives, pretty much our entire lives until somebody says to you, this was none of your fault. Even when they do say it, you don't, you don't believe it because you've had that um, record playing in your head your whole life. 
my family doesn't come around because I'm the one who told, I'm the one who caused all this chaos. The ability to blame the predator is, is extinct in the mind of a, of a person who is the victim because the victim blames themselves. In between all this, I had an uncle that also molested me a few times. It wasn't a blood uncle. It was an uncle of the family or it was a friend of the family who I've known since before I was born. So in turn became an uncle kind of thing. And I never told anybody. I never told anybody of what happened with this, with this uncle of mine because I, was, I had already seen the trauma that had caused with my grandfather. I wasn't going to bring this up as well. Still to this day, you've never said anything? Actually, the first time I've said anything was right now on this, on this, on this conversation. Wow. We, we hadn't seen him for a long time. Um, they lived in that completely, I think they live in another state. I, I believe he's still alive. I'm not sure. So it was kind of one of those things where it's like, I am not going to, I'm not going to do this to my family. Again. I'm not putting them through this for more. So I never mentioned it to anybody. There's always been that, again, and I'm 44 years old and this happened from, you know, when I was six to 13, a sense of what, what good would it do? If I were to bring this up again, me even being your husband, you never told me. <laughs> no, I never. <laughs> and in my mind, the way the way my mind works is that well, it wasn't as bad. It happened two or three times as a compose as compared to a weekly, uh, every other, you know, twice a week type scenario for six years. I mean, that's so much worse than what happened to what this uncle did you know and so to me that makes sense this was after your grandfather during this is during when, when we talk about things that are associated with child sexual abuse in a lot of ways and and through studies and information they've gathered that females are exposed to child sexual abuse are at two to 13 times an increased risk of sexual victimization in adulthood even so the consequences are extensive and they go can ultimately last for a long time. Right. I want to also bring up the other interesting component that I've always found when I learned about you and your family and situation is your grandmother and grandfather. Yeah. And, and culture. And I think this comes down to, you know, uh, what are, what are, various different cultures views of things like this. And I think it's slightly different, at least from my understanding. Go ahead and tell the scenario about your father's birth and, and your grandparents. Yeah. So again, this is a, he said, she said scenario. My grandmother and grandfather started dating and she became pregnant with my father and she said it was rape and he said it wasn't. My great-grandmother, which I never met, forced them to get married. So my father is a product of rape by the same man that molested me. Grandmother treated my father like he was a product of rape. She abused, she, she beat the crap out of him. She didn't really show a lot of love and affection. Uh, by this time, she had seven kids. I mean, my father's the oldest of, of the other kids. And then people wonder, well, if he if he was if she was raped, then why do they have seven more kids? Well, back in those days, that's what women did. Uh, there was no no contraceptive. There, you know, if a husband wanted to have sex and they got pregnant, then that's what you did. You, more 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 and more people of those days had a lot of children. So there's never been a true confirmation whether it was rape or not, but. The consensus is that it was my great grandmother forcing them to marry them because it was such a shameful thing if a woman became pregnant out of wedlock. The odds of attempting suicide are six times higher for men and nine times higher for women with the history of child sexual abuse than those without it. Have you ever? Did you ever go through that at all? Thoughts of suicide? I, oh, thoughts of suicide, absolutely. I think the one attempt that I ever did was more for just attention. Um, seeking. I never, I never, I didn't cut deep enough. Let's just say it that way. And I, again, was about 14, 15 years old when I did that. I fell into a very promiscuous lifestyle. 
to me, uh, love was shown by sex. So if, if a man didn't want to have sex or if they said they loved me, but we weren't having sex, it was, it was because I wasn't good enough. So your whole mind starts to think about all the things that the, um, the molester put in your mind because you start to lose the ability to have that self-esteem, which is supposed to be instilled in you when you're young. You start to get very insecure. You start to get very unsure of yourself. Um, on top of everything else, because of the abuse that my father had endured as a child, he abused us emotionally in the sense that we were never good enough. We were, we, we were too fat. We were compared to other skinnier kids or smarter kids. So there was always that comparison that there was somebody out there that was better than us. It's just, there was all we, I mean, they even compared us against each other, my sisters and I. So to this day, and again, we're all in our forties. We still have that almost of a competition type thing with each other. And we know logically it doesn't make sense, but it's emotionally hard for us to break um, because we were put up against each other for so long as a child. For me, it goes a step further because I was molested for so long. Um, there's a lot of other aspects to it. Um, but yeah, suicide was a question. I don't know if it was more of a fear that I didn't want to kill myself. I know for the longest time I didn't want to kill myself because I didn't want to cause my mom pain. That was the only reason I kept saying, I don't want to have my mom suffer a death of another child um, by my hands. And then after that, I had kids and then it was like, I don't want to have my kids um, lose their mother because I can't deal with, with this depression or this self-loathing that I had for a long time. I want to ask you a very difficult question. and adults, you know, ultimately need to take the steps to prevent child sexual abuse. Adults are responsible for ensuring that all children have a safe, stable, nurturing relationship and environments. But resources for child sexual abuse have mostly focused on treatment for victims and the criminal justice oriented approaches for perpetrators. Now, these are obviously important after child sexual abuse has occurred, but little investment has ever been made in primary prevention or preventing child sexual abuse before it ultimately occurs. And we see this a lot with many different things. It's ultimately about catching them once it's happened, but there's not a lot of effort and emphasis and put into helping to prevent it or to help it from occurring. And so there's been very limited, effective evidence-based strategies for proactively protecting children from child sexual abuse. So I wanted to ask you a question here. And this again is a very difficult one. What are your ideas in terms of what are things that we can do as a country or as a world, because this is not a American only thing, uh, to help prevent this type of stuff? That's an amazing question. And it's, it's really insightful that, um, you know, we as a society have the ability to, to provide help after the fact, right? And I've thought about this a lot, actually, through the years of, of what could have been done, what could have prevented what happened to me? How can it be prevented to other children? First and foremost, we all know that parents are born without a guidebook. If we did, we may be a lot more perfect parents out there, right? It is a parent's responsibility to really listen to the cues of their child. Children are really, really smart and they can instantly like a person or dislike a person. They have this intuitive reaction to people around them, okay? Whatever you want to call that spiritual or just the innocence of a child, however you want to put that. So listening to their cues is super important. Uh, not forcing their child to sit on somebody's lap, to force them to go into their bedroom to say hello. That Setting boundaries with 
with adults, whether they're in your family or not, but sometimes almost especially when they're in your family, right? Because when they're in your family, you 100% trust the other person, an uncle, a grandfather, an aunt, a, you know, um, a sister, whatever. So you, you 100% trust them, but maybe you should be at 90% of trust, right? You don't know everything about everybody. And, and so really being in tune to, to children, continue to teach children, talk to your children about what is okay and what's not okay and telling them that if somebody ever does this, these are some of the things they might say. These are some of the things that they might make you feel like it's your fault. Reminding them that they can always come talk to you about any of that and that nothing will ever break their, their, the bond they have with you. Also remembering that this doesn't just happen to girls. Um, like you mentioned at the beginning, one out of every 13, I can guarantee you it's one out of five, one out of six. It's a lot closer to females being molested. And the reason why the numbers are skewed is because boys less likely will come out and say that they were sexually abused by anybody because they're afraid that it will show that they have a lack of manhood. It will show a sign of weakness in our society has instilled, even today, even though we've been a little more lax today, it's still that a man's a man and they're not supposed to feel anything and they're supposed to be strong and they can't have any emotions, right? And so a lot of men still instill that in their children. I am a mother of three boys plus my two um, stepsons. But raising the three of my boys, I didn't forget the fact of what happened to me that could happen to them at any point. I didn't just leave them with anybody. I had to have, I had to feel that trust. I had to feel like, does my, is my child comfortable with this person? Um, do I have any cues or is there anything out there? Any kind of reaction that, he, that my child's giving that I maybe need to question. So it's very vigilant. Sexual abuse needs to be talked at at a very young age before it happens. You know, maybe even having a course, you know, a, a week to discuss with, with kids. It, it might be a, it's a really uncomfortable conversation, but to have a, a day or two out of a, you know, year's worth of courses in kindergarten, first grade, whatever the case may be, to talk about that this could be, this could happen. And what steps does a child need to take? And remind them that all the things that the predator is doing to you or saying to you are completely false. So educating them at a young age, because not everything should fall on the parent as well. Parents should educate as well as schools, as well as maybe having, you know, we have polices that come into the, to the schools that talk about, you know, drugs, say no to drugs, right? We all remember that, right? We've had, we've had like those um, mini earthquake assemblies, right? So you go into a little bus and they teach you what to do for an assembly, how to escape for a fire. So they teach you all that kind of stuff, but I don't see why they can't do this like one or two course classes to talk about what, what possibilities can happen, right? Um, because our children are so innocent. They don't know that it's right or wrong. They don't know, they, they can feel that it's wrong, and, but they're being told to keep it to themselves and to keep the secret. So they don't know where to go. If I had a better relationship with my mother and father at the time that I was, I don't know if I would have said anything because I wasn't educated on that. So with my boys, I educated them on that. You know, while I was playing with it, while they were playing in the bathtub, I would ask them to show me where their private parts are and what's not okay and what is okay. And it's okay to talk to me and, you know, this, that, and the other. I mean, I probably took it a, a little bit more to, to an extreme um, because w- when my child was at the age where he was experimenting, he was about, he was in first grade, he started experimenting with himself and enjoying the touching part a little too much. I automatically assumed it was somebody who was teaching him this and took him to the doctors and had the doctor do a whole screening to make sure he wasn't being molested and, you know, whatever. It was just, he was at that age where he started to experiment but I was okay with it. I didn't care if the doctor thought I was crazy. I didn't care if anybody else thought I was crazy. I was told by their father that I was crazy for even thinking it was molestation as opposed to just, um, you know, experimenting with his body. Um, but I didn't care. I, I said, you know what? I'd rather know. I want him to, to know that he can 
that he's supported by me. So I think that's really where it kind of boils down to. And this is really one of the reasons why I want to tell my story. I want to be able to help those children before it becomes a problem because we have such a big society of people that are hiding and holding on to pain that they, that they experience as a young child. And we need to stop that. We need to, we need to be able to not hold on to that pain anymore. I believe that this is something that is much bigger than just families. And I think that, you know, if we do care about our kids or we do care about our future and all kids, that this is something that our whole society needs to look at. And just like you had said, it's not just the parents that needs to teach. It needs to be the, the teachers at the school. Because what if it's the parents? That goes back to that whole scenario that, that you know, we could say, and you hear it all the time, oh, that's just the parents' responsibility. But what if it's the parents that are molesting the kids? That's where we run into real problems. I mean, you have the scenarios where it's the teacher molesting the kid or it's the parents molesting the kid. Um, it's a complete stranger blessing the kid, you know, so there's, there's so many different variables and there needs to be a safe zone for a child to know what number to call or where to go to. If it is the parent, if it is a teacher, um, and the parents don't believe them, you know, so you have that, that aspect as well. I was fortunate enough to have my parents believe me and took all the necessary steps they needed to take to help me. Although I, I could have really used a lot more counseling at a younger age. I didn't get it until after my mom passed away. And, and uh, man, was that an eye opener. There, there, there needs to be some sort of, you know, society, not society, some sort of program or, or something that where, where children can feel safe to divulge this information if they're scared because somebody has done something that's even closer than your grandfather or your uncle, right? It's, if it's, if it's your parents, much, much like the child protective services, if a child's being physically abused, does a child know to call that number? If they're being physically abused, sexually abused or anything like that, do children know that? No, because we rely on a neighbor to call or rely on somebody that may have overheard something and said, I'm going to call and have the uh, you know, top type of services take a look at this. So yeah, absolutely. It's a societal thing. Young children are being hurt every day, both men and women. And then in, in growth, and like I said, I became very promiscuous. There's some women that continue to live that life. They victimize themselves so much and they don't know it. Believe me, I didn't know it. I didn't know how rough I was on myself. Um, like I said, until after my mother died and I really sought some really deep therapy on one, getting over the death of my mother or not necessarily getting over it, being able to function and learned a lot about myself and how the molestation, although I thought I had gotten past it and had moved on, really truly affected who I was and how it affected my relationship with my children my relationship with my spouse, um, you know, my relationship across the board. And a lot of it had to do with, I'm just not good enough. Everybody that I love deserves better. I'm not a good enough mom. I'm not a good enough daughter. I'm not a good enough wife. You know, so there was a lot of guilt and shame that's, that I still work through on a daily basis. This podcast is really designed for real honesty and to talk about things with no agendas at all. So I want to actually ask you, and I want to bring up a topic that is extremely controversial, uh, and this is something that is is really fought hard, is that you had a grandfather who abused you, who was convicted of a sex crime, but he was here on a green card Correct. and was never forced out of the country. And I know this is a big controversial topic, um, you know, especially with, you know, you got Donald Trump that's always reporting how, you know, our illegals or people, even though he wasn't illegal, he was obviously here, you know, with a green card, legit. Uh, but it had always been this idea that if you are convicted of a crime, that you're kicked back to your country. And this never happened. So it, it, it tried to happen. He was supposed to be deported several times back to Chile. But my aunts, my father's sisters, fought tooth and nail to keep him in the state because 
my grandmother needed him. My grandmother was unable to financially support herself. So, and nobody wanted my grandmother to live with them, which says a lot, right? My grandmother was a very bitter woman, is a very bitter woman. And she now lives in a uh, convalescent home. And she is how old? I believe she's 95 now, 94, 95. So you say evil never dies? Evil never dies. <laughs> <laughs> as, as, as anybody who knows me, uh, my family has a, is of German descent. Part of my father's side of the family is of German descent. And her nickname for her, my nickname for her is Hitler. So Grandma Hitler is what I call her. She's nicer now that she's in her 90s, but she still complains about everything. So it's, 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 a, it's a running joke. But So they did try to deport several times. Paid a lot of money in court fees to keep him here. And I remember a really good story. If you have some time, I'll tell you about this one. I was in my 20s. I had two kids by this time. It was, again, in, in the middle of a, uh, of a deporting scenario. They wanted to deport him. They had him in court. So there was a lot of that kind of back and forth. So my little sister, I guess she picked this, the short straw, called me. Now, mind you, this is the little sister that I tried to save from being molested. Hey, I, um, they're trying to deport the old man. That's what we called him after that was just the old man. What do I care? And it became a, well, you know, he can't be deported because grandma can't live on her own and nobody wants grandma to live with her and, uh, or with them. And they, they need you to write a letter that you forgive him. And I said, why should I help him in any way, shape or form? I, I don't understand why, you know, why this is so needed. Well, the only way the court's going to let him stay is if you tell him that you've moved on. And I was, I said, no, no, I'm not going to help him. Was I still bitter at the time? Was I still angry? I don't know if I was. I just didn't feel like I needed to help him. I had moved on. And um, I remember my little sister saying, you've got to stop being selfish and start thinking about other people. So it was really hurtful. Um, Hung up with her, cried for quite some time because it touched on that guilty feeling again. That feeling that I needed to do this because it was my responsibility because I'm the one who broke up the family. And so with that scenario, um, you know, I gave it a day or two, called my mom and my, and my sister, and I said, I'll write the letter. And I think that was the beginning of letting go, truly letting go. Um, so, and that's how I saw it. The letter basically explained to them, it doesn't matter where he lives. It doesn't matter if he lives in the States, if he lives in Chile, if he lives wherever he goes, this obviously he was out of jail by this time. The fact of the matter is it happened. And what happened lives in me, not where he lives, right? Something I've got to deal with. It's something I've got to live with. What he needs to know is he lost the ability to ever get to know his great grandchildren, to ever have a relationship with his granddaughter, to experience any of the family stuff that, you know, a lot of grandparents look forward to. So that was the beginning of, of my journey of forgiveness for myself. And it still took very, very, very many years after that. And it's a constant daily thing to be able to learn to love myself, see myself the way that other people see me, love who I am. It's, it's a constant journey. I, I read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of podcasts about loving oneself. Um, I still go to therapy, you know, I still do all that kind of stuff, but it's not for him. It's for me. I did write a letter, um, gave it to my mother later. This was a different letter and let him know that I forgave him, that I forgave him for myself, not for him. I said, because at the end of the day, you're the one who's suffering because you're never going to know the impact or you're never going to know what it's like to have great grandchildren. Did he ever show any kind of remorse? No. Even during the court, even during um, the court session, his response to the molestation was, I didn't think it was any problem because I didn't penetrate her with my penis. So he admitted to it. Yeah, he admitted to it, but he didn't see it as bad because it wasn't a penetration with, with his penis. And he said that in court? He said that in court. How long did he get in prison? Seven years. And he served maybe four? About five, four or five. 
after he went to jail, I never, I never heard anything else about it. Never heard anything else about him in, in the sense of, you know, the, and, and the family still took care of him. The family still did what they needed to do to, to support him in whatever way. But anytime they talked about him, I either wasn't there or I didn't care to even listen. In fact, when he died, and I want to say he died about six years ago, maybe now, I think it was about three years prior to my mom's death or two years prior to my mom's death. That's when I asked my mom to put that letter in his um, casket. My mom didn't go to his funeral, but um, my father did. And he put that letter in, in the casket. That was my closure. He never read it. It wasn't for him. It was for me. He's buried with it now. He's buried with it now. He'll read it in hell. I put it in a fireproof paper so that he can read it in hell. <laughs> but it's 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 a journey, and I and um, I encourage victims of abuse to not be ashamed because it wasn't what you did; it was what the predator did. Whether you're male or female, you can't blame yourself. You got to learn to love yourself the way that others love you. Because at the end of the day, the, the, the pain that you're holding on to, the hurt that you're holding on to, you are giving the molester, the predator, the whatever you, the rapist, whatever you want to call them, you're giving them the power. And that's not what you want to give them. So like I said, you, you may have become a victim but you don't have to live as one. And the longer that you live as a victim, the more power you're giving your predator. And that goes to that saying, it's not as important what happened to you, but it's important what you do about it. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of people that tell me all the time, oh my gosh, Marilla, you are such a strong individual. A lot of people who don't even know my story. I'm a very strong woman. And I pride that on the fact that my father taught all three of us daughters to never rely on anybody but ourselves and not in a bad way, but to say his, his term was, you never know what other people are doing and how they're going to affect you. So if, as long as you rely on yourself to take care of yourself financially, emotionally, however you need to, you do what you need to do. And he always reminded us that boys were no good. So they only had one thing in mind and all that kind of stuff. So I, I contribute that to my father, did teach us a lot, although he was absent quite a bit, like with his AA stuff, he still was a good father and he still made sure he took, it took time to teach us those things. So I think we were the only girls in the neighborhood that knew how to change our oil and our tire and our cars. And so we knew how to double check everything before we went on a large, large, you know, long road trip or whatever. He always took care of us in that way. So I attribute a lot of my strength to that. But I also am now learning that a lot of my strength comes from my, my story, my journey that I've learned and, and a lot of my love too. So a lot of the love that I'm a very loving person. I love to take care of people. Um, Eric, as you know, I got two kids out of the house already and I don't know what to do with myself um, <laughs> because I've loved other people so hard that um, it's time to really love myself. And give myself the, the same love that I've given everybody else. And so if I was still a victim, I wouldn't, I wouldn't see that. I wouldn't know that. A lot of the struggles that you deal with, with, with addiction, you're holding on to such a pain that it was not your fault. You're holding on to a lot of things that you need to let go. In order for you to stay in recovery, in order for you to continue to to grow in your life and love and do all that kind of stuff. You've got to let go of that pain, whether it be you, you seek therapy for it, um, whether it be that you write your story down and share your story with others, whatever you have to do to, to let that stuff go. And like I said, I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter to, to my predator and he never read it. I put it in, you know, had to put it in his casket and I let it go. I let it go with the words that were on that paper. Do I forget it? No. Do I dwell on it? Absolutely not. It's in the past. It's happened. It's a story that I can share with others to help build them to have strength, that they can have the strength. They don't have to be the victim. Yes, you are the most amazing woman ever. And from when the day I met you and I learned about you and we were talking and, and I was getting to hear lots of your stories, you have a presence about yourself of courage 
this empowerment and the ability to walk through these different things with your head held high and to be able to, you know, have, have had to have gone those through those experiences and to have learned that ability to forgive, because that is, again, what forgiveness is. It's not about doing it for anybody else. You're doing it for yourself. And that is ultimately what is most important. He obviously showed no remorse. He obviously didn't care. And so you holding on to that was not hurting him. Absolutely. It was ultimately just hurting you. And, you know, again, you look at consequences of these types of things that we're seeing. You know, you've got unwanted, unplanned pre- pregnancies for people that have been through sexual abuse, chronic conditions later in life, heart disease, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse issues, risky sexual behaviors, as you had, you had brought up, increased risk of suicide, which we had talked about. If you don't treat these or deal with these or figure out a way to heal yourself and help yourself, these are the things that you will get to experience. And so that is one of the, again, the the most important things. And I'm so glad you came on here, honey. Thank you for letting me share my story. Yeah. You have an amazing story and you are, again, we should actually title our whole thing here. Survivors, people that I've had on this. They're all survivors. Anthony, Joe, Kathy, you, these, you are great examples of the ability to survive no matter what. Right. I think a lot of, a lot of people that are victimized, let the victimization define them. They need to define themselves. Don't let it define you. I want to thank you again. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of Recovering Through Highness. Look forward to future. And I will see you soon.